Hello and welcome once more to a Darker Days Darkwing. This is Darkwing number 22 and is the second part in a series that looks at chronicle design. This time around, I am joined once more by my friend James. Hello. And also, we are joined by Vergast, aka Steve, who used to uh, appear quite a lot on uh, the old Darker Days forums, and of course, is joined by Adrian on Darkwing number 21. If you haven't listened to that, go listen to that now. That's full of Dark Ages goodness. But, of course, this is all to do with chronicle design, and we're going to look at a bit more in-depth at preparation and subplots and plotting and that kind of uh, how to plan your chronicle. Also, we'll look at just um, how much work you should put in and how much work that your player should put in. And eventually we'll just look at things such as like themes and moods and really how to uh, fit those into your chronicle so it covers uh, certain types of stories that you want to tell. Right, so I guess everyone's okay, because otherwise they wouldn't be here recording. So, James, how are you? How are things going? Um, pretty well, pretty well. You know, a very, very busy week. I've taken uh, one of our designers at work who's off sick, so I've inherited a load of projects, um, which have been written in German. So, <laughs> that's, that's good fun. Excellent. And, Steve, you're okay? Uh, I'm here in body, if not in spirits. I'm nursing a monumental hangover, so... The best way to do a podcast is <laughs> nursing a hangover. Okay, cool. Anyone been doing anything interesting gaming-wise recently, other than what have I done? Upgraded a laptop, played on Diablo 3. It's nice looking, but a bit click and kill. So, yeah, that's about it for me. Um, Games-wise, uh, I've had a look at um, this, which came out recently. It's absolutely beautiful. And really, pretty nice the platform game. Been waiting for it like three years. So it's, it's, it's quite good. It's, um, is that the one that that changes the perspective? Yeah, yeah. You okay. Can, it's a two D world, but you can rotate it, and that change you can end up seeing around the back of things. And, uh, okay. Yeah, it's it's very cool, and it, oddly enough, it kind of manages to tell a story, even though it's very light and stuff. Whereas, for example, Diablo 3, which had its beat this weekend, though it's got very swanky graphics, I didn't manage to get anywhere near as engaged with the story of that. So, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's a nice one for showing that you don't have to like, explicitly state everything. You can hint at stuff. Yeah. And, Steve, gaming-wise, you've been playing a lot of... Uh, Lost and the Damned for the GTA 4 spin-off. Okay. Uh, it's a biker kind of driven thing. Uh, a bit like Sons of Anarchy. If anybody's oh, seen that TV show. It's, it's, I'm, I'm using it as an excuse as it's research because I want to insert uh, a similar kind of gang of anarchs into my current band of Pride, The Masquerade Chronicle. Okay, cool. That's that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, classic gang of nom- nomadic vampires. Sweet. Yeah, bit cliche, but cliches have got are cliches for a reason. They don't yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to use them sometimes, otherwise uh, you're just not going to run anything eventually. Nope. Right then, so let's follow up from uh, last uh, dark, the last Darkwing, so Darkwing Twenty, which is the first part of this. We had we've had a bit of feedback from some people, generally saying thanks, this is exactly what I needed because I'm about to start running my game, or 
which book was that? That might actually help me with making a more interesting chronicle. So we've definitely tapped into something that people desire uh, for World of Darkness. So hopefully this one will be the exact follow-up they need, which is really how, how to get into the nuts and bolts of putting the chronicle together. Because last time we were really looking at... Um, really kind of the type of chronicle you'd be running, whether it was sandbox or one long story or episodic, whereas this is more to do with how to populate your chronicle with information to turn it into an actual plot and setting. So I think the easiest question to ask is, what sort of preparation should you do and how much? Steve, (laughs) I asked you that question. We'll start from there. Okay, well, I'm a big believer in being prepared, and as much work as you can put in will give your world that you want to portray a sense of depth, but don't be surprised if some of the work that you put in never actually sees playtime. I think that's a mistake that a lot of GMs do, or storytellers do, is they don't put the background into the work, They 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 just do a little bit of work along a linear thread, that as soon as you move away from that linear thread, throw their hands up in the air in disarray, blame the PCs, and give up. Yeah. Uh, If you think that your players are going to do that, and you know that they're going to do that, why continue to write that way? Why not uh, do more work and populate your world with not only, like we're going to talk about tonight, main plots, but also interesting subplots for NPCs who might not actually get much game time at the table. So your your thing is, and I've had this before, I've been asked this, is like, why on earth do you write so much... uh, plot information or setting information when you're never going to use it. And it's because I actually might use it, I just don't know what the hell you guys are going to do in my game. And it's nice, as you say, it's it's nice to be prepared when you go, ah, you've gone down that dark alleyway. Well, it just so happens that whatever beastie happens to live down there and will rip your face off. Yeah, prepare, prepare, prepare. And that's all I can actually say is more is better. I mean, also, the one thing is you should never feel bad that you've written too much because you can always run a sequel chronicle to it or run another game set there that is, in some respects, not related to the previous chronicle you run, but you've got all the information ready to run with even, perhaps, brand-new players. I mean, I guess I'm guilty of writing far too... maybe maybe far too much because I actually write entire uh, setting books that are very similar to a, to White Wolf books for, for particular cities. Um, Steve, do you have a habit of doing the same thing? I do have a habit of doing a very similar thing, but not to the same level. Like I, I normally concentrate more on locale, mm. plot, and NPCs. The history of the place, I've often found that my players don't give a damn. We could yeah. be playing in London, we could be playing in Venice, we could be playing in Brussels. They wouldn't give a damn. It's the story about the vampires, because that's, let's face it, my players we play Vampire the Masquerade they want to be vampires they want to meet other vampires they don't really want to get involved in mortal, mortal affairs too often so that's hard to, to get in sometimes that's, that's some of the interesting things you could do when you've put a lot of work in you could take them down lines that they don't really want to go in and still show them that there's a mortal side of the city yeah that's really cool so James because obviously yeah. you're in the process of, of uh, actually setting up your chronicle um, what have you done so far in your your preparation because of course this is your first foray into uh, doing this um, yeah, what, what, do your, what do your notes look like because your notes right now mostly look I would guess look like maybe 
at a, look vaguely similar to a stage in the notes I may have at a very early step or the, or, or a stage that Steve has where, you know, I have a final, have a finished day, the Venice book, e-book that I think you've looked at, haven't you, James? Yeah. I've you've seen, and it's, it's monumentally, it's fully, it's fully written out and explicit with history and plot hooks and so forth for people to use. But my original notes didn't look anywhere near as complete as that. They were more like bullet points and so forth. So, yeah, where are you in your kind of like preparation? How does it look? What kind of things have you got there? Um, well, I've, you know, I've watched a lot of movies, I've done some research, and I, I've researched into the history of Hamburg and what kind of stuff's happened here. And I've, I've got some ideas for stories that I, that I like the idea of, but it's coming up to the point of figuring out which is, which is the most important for the setting, and I think, like, I, I have an idea. Originally I was thinking it was going to be this, uh, about the ghost of this guy, Klaus uh, Stortebrecker, the um, pirate. Yeah, uh, and he he sounds really funky, and there's definitely um, a lot that you could do. Did we did we talk about him in the last session? Sorry. I think we talked about that. I know we're definitely going to have to use that pirate as a secret frequency and go into more detail. Yeah, um, but basically, um, yeah, he his ghost is busy around Hamburg, but um, and. That's that's good for me an idea for something I could I could do. Uh, but I I was thinking about that as the main plot originally. Now I'm thinking that I actually want to have the the kind of the culture clash that's going on as something between the um, the series of the throne and the uh, the free council. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've been looking. I've been trying to pick areas. Of, I mean, because I'm in Hamburg and I'm not. A Hamburg native. There's a lot of actual background that I'm just trying to pick up, um, so I don't. So I'm not completely out of place when uh, when someone wants to go somewhere. And I'm like, where's where's that? Is that in Hamburg? Yeah. What kind of what area? Still, still very bare bones at the moment, though. I know. Okay. So it's more like a series of bullet points that you're slowly building up that will eventually coalesce. Yeah, and trying to trying to figure out like plot points of interest, interesting stuff that can happen for the players to actually be involved in as well. Like, um, yes, if there's a ghost, but what what does the ghost do to actually involve the players? Why do they have anything to do with him at all? Yeah, like if, if he's just hanging out in a cemetery somewhere, then they're probably not really that bothered. Okay, so preparation that we should do, I think. As I said, Steve, was like the amount of um, the amount of research uh, you can put into into your setting with like the location and the history of it, and how relevant it is to your game and how relevant it is to your players is an interesting point. Because I like researching the hell out of a city to give myself plot hooks that I can use, but I don't expect players to want to know all of that. I don't I certainly don't expect them to know want even need to know all of it. Because to me if they if they're going to find out about that information it's normally going to be through the course of playing the game. Does that kind of make sense? So like revelations about so and so did so and so when like say a particular character NPC that you have in your game was involved in a uh, 
in a particular historical event. So if we take, for example, with Manchester, there's the Peterloo Massacre of like the 1800s. That's a particular real-world historical event. I don't expect players to go out and research the hell out of it, but for me, it's a plot point if it's important to what they're doing with that player character, if it has some some uh, importance to events as they're occurring in the modern nights. So that's why I researched the hell out of a, out of a city setting. But that's, again, like I said to before, to give your, your, your setting a sense of depth. Some yeah. stuff went on before the group turned up. Yeah. Stuff was happening here before you turned up. Be, stuff will be still be happening here after you leave. Exactly. Um, this, is, this, is, um, this is sometimes hard for beginner GMs to get their head around, I think, sometimes. Because like I was saying before, the, the, the use of a linear plot. That's not to say that a, a linear plot, there's anything wrong with that. I say, if you go to your group and you say, look, don't expect war and peace out of this. Just expect a action movie-esque kind of plot that we go from A to B to C to D to E. You kill the end bad guy, and that's what we're going to do. If that's what your players want, why not give it to them? Because... Yeah. GMs or storytellers should listen to their players first. You might come up with the best damn campaign in the world for a political campaign and your players just want to go out and kick ass. You, know, you, can't, you can't really... You could try and push them in the right direction, but if they don't want to go, they ain't going to go. And, uh, you know, as soon as players start to get bored, that's where kind of, you know, NPCs take the brunt of their, uh, their boredom. You know, oh, what are going to do? Mm. I don't know, I'm going to punch him. Why? Because uh, I'm a bruja. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right. So. It's yeah. Knowing knowing what your play, how I think that's obviously an important thing is um is with all these bits of information and so forth is is knowing how much your players will ever want to uh, kind of be invested in kind of listening to those bits of information and putting them together. I I mean my uh, experience of players, I've seen people that don't give a damn and just kind of trundle through the setting. And then obviously there are players that go oh well, that happened there and then this happened here, so it must mean that, and then they suddenly start going off with their own kind of theories and conclusions, which may or may not be true but still it's fun to see how they put together the information that I uh, provide through the uh, series of stories and episodes they participate in. So I guess with a setting history, I don't think you can really talk about a setting history uh, for a game without really talking about the NPCs as well, because a lot of the point, a lot of the, the setting points in, say, for example, my Manchester setting, they're pointless bits of history unless they're tied to a particular NPC at that, um, who's related to it. So, for example... Knowing a lot about, say, Roman Age Manchester is pointless unless there is a NPC that has some uh, relation to that information, which in this case is, say, a vampire who does kind of have some memories of that time and actually is rumoured to have dated from that period and is actually quite one of the oldest elders in the city, let alone all of the UK. So... I think you can't really, yeah, you can't talk about setting history without thinking about your NPCs. Well, that, that using those those points in history that like you said it before about the uh, the massacres, you could also say take uh, the Los Angeles riots. 
mm-hmm. as the beginning to the overthrow and the formation of the free states, say in the old Metaplot, if anybody yeah. remembers that. Because that sets a time frame for people when it happened. You know, I, I don't know the actual date, but whenever it was, that sense of that it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was, there, there's that point in time that everything else has happened since then, and this is how we've got to here. Yeah. You can see, and uh, when monumental events then start happening in your campaign, I think the group then gets the impression that, you know, things can change for the, for the whole kind of setting that you're trying to portray. So that's the other thing as well. Don't be, don't be scared halfway through if you want to lead them down one path and then give them the old switch and take them down a tangent they weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in the campaign that I'm running at the minute, it's set in Pittsburgh in the United States. Okay. It's split into three by rivers. That's the only reason I really chose it and expanded upon it from there. Three sisters are supposed to be running the city and one of them is killed and it changes the, the kind of yeah, yeah. That 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 triumvirate being knocked over and being left with two, and two with one of them wanting to grab power means everything's changing, and the group's been part of that, and noticed that things have changed because of that, and people can point to it as a, as a, as a uh, a point on on your on your campaign that is having greater effects. That was all with the backdrop of a riot that was mm. to do with um, uh, mortal affairs that the group didn't really pay much attention to, but that's because my group, like I said before, don't really seem to. Get involved in the mortal world. But ah. I think um, James, you 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 of course played in my vampire game, and again that idea of like you having the sense of of the player characters being involved in in major events that are tied to which are, are now a new turning point uh, of the, like, the status quo when there was mate when and the status quo of course occurred due to a major event, say ten years ago, twenty years ago. Uh, for example, because like um, so in my vampire setting, you have the entire you have um, it's a Carthian-run si- uh, city with a chairman who's been in power since uh, just after the uh, the Peterloo massacre, which removed the Lancaster Sanctum from power, and he set himself up as the elected chairman. But he's basically been elected year you know every five years for the last however long, so he's kind of just accepted as being in that place. But he's not a prince because you have this board of elected officials. And p- one of the things I introduced in the setting was that the Ordo Draco were banned from elections and banned from having a seat on the uh, on the board uh, back during the um, uh, when was it the to do with the poll tax riots. So they were using you know it's it's always the inter- that's why the historical things are interesting because you use those points of unrest. It's like that's when you think, well, that's when any shadow society would use that as a cover to do what they want to get done. Um, and so obviously in my vampire game, James, who was taking part of it, was involved in a new series of elections because there was a whole, um, like the, 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 the elected Carthian had just been assassinated. So there was a new Carthian being brought to power um, and a whole load of like the Carthians having their own internal fighting and then eventually having the Ordo Draco being brought back onto the board of of uh, the board of uh, representatives because that always changed up the politics. And it's just to give, as you say, it's the, Steve. It's about the whole given a sense of of monumental events left created the setting as it is, as the players are in. And, but then the players are now involved in events which will again change that setting to be something new and different. And you know they're involved in kind of creating something in the unknown. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And I think that's the beauty over tabletop games, over, say, a lot of computer games, that your players can interact with it and change it in a way that is totally unexpected. It can take you in new and interesting ways to a level the computer games haven't got to at the minute. And I think that's the other beauty, the kind of the lost part of uh, our role-playing sometimes, is this idea of these, these stories we tell one another are things that you can talk about, like you and James have a history of role-playing together. You can talk with your friends that form these small stories that you've gone through together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this, this sense of uh, you know, kind of role-players being a, a community, which is uh, you know, often lost sometimes on all of this, that we are little groups of... Uh, people sharing ideas and we all have similar kind of stories and that kind of thing sometimes we forget about that kind of stuff but that's nice that's real nice and so james you're looking at sort of um the same sort of kind of plot idea aren't you you're looking at again kind of the idea of a of some form of revolution in your game setting yeah like there's um at the moment part of the problem or one of the issues in hamburg is um gentrification so all of the all the cultural areas where all the artists used to live are now being bought out by people with loads of money, but they're not actually contributing anything to the, the culture of that area. And then all of the artists and musicians end up having to move out because they can't afford the new prices. Um, and that kind of that kind of push between uh, like money and art, I think, is quite an interesting uh, it's quite an interesting idea. And I like to pursue that in my chronicle. Um, cool. Okay. So, you were going to say something, Steve? Yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, we were going to talk about theme and mood sometimes. That mm. Sometimes uh, a good story can start from just something as small as, like James got there, this, this idea of a conflict between money and art. That's yeah. What you, yeah. If you sometimes boil what you want to do down into a simple term, and every time you do something, try and think of these key terms, your theme and your mood, while you're writing all your different bits and pieces, you can still get that across to your players. And so each time you run it, you can do it slightly differently to give a different theme to different to different groups. Yeah. You know, uh, starting off with these key kind of points is, I think, the best way to start before you decide on your, what, you know uh, what city you're going to play in, what you're going to do, who's going to do what. What's, just go to your players and say, this is what I'm thinking of running. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of theme that I'm going to be looking at. Do you guys want to play in a game like that? And then if you get a resounding bunch of yeses, you can take it further and then start expanding upon that. I also think this is um, this goes back to something about writing really in doing like really in depth settings. Is that I think out of my Manchester game, um, because I've got kind of a, a long term view of the type of if I was to run three chronicles, like what I would do. Um, you can you can still look at say if you if you look at a particular setting, you can actually even see how many different chronicles could you run in the same setting. Mm-hmm. So for example. As I said, like, for my vampire game, the players were predominantly Carthians because I was more interested in, like, the Carthian politics and, and, and dealing with that with a bunch of neonates. And then the sequel chronicle that I'm looking to run is where it's more like a Carthian and a few friends who are looking to use him to, to take power and dealing with the politics between the Carthians and then the other covenants. So it's, again, you can, you can tell... You can have quite a complete setting and yet tell quite different chronicles by t- looking at, at different subsections of your setting. So my setting is feasible to run a, a game where you look at the Invictus, but the theme of that game and the mood of that game would be very different to what I've run with Carthians because they have very different issues to play with. So you can, you can go two different routes on this. You could even make the setting and then see how many different chronicles could you run out of it. Or you could go, 
this is the type of chronicle I want to run, and then make the setting to fit it. Mm-hmm. I suppose and that's that's where we've all got our own kind of way of looking at things. Like I think that's the thing that we should get across to the listeners as well. There's no right and wrong way of doing oh, anything. Yeah. You know, what works for you works for you. Might not work for me, and I won't argue with you. You know, if you're writing campaigns and chronicles that you're really happy with, do it your way, mate. You know, if you think we're talking rubbish, tell us why you think we're talking rubbish. Sure, but at least come to us and say, well, this is how I do it. This is these are the logic. This is the logic behind how I do it. If that works for you, that's brilliant. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Um, so moving a little bit more into this, then. Um, so we've obviously talked about setting history and that. You know. It's kind of like building up all those bullet points that you want to make use of, and eventually it might turn into the fact that you've actually researched the entire history of of your setting. And again, the the important thing to note with this is maybe the difference between how this is maybe a a harder or easier task, depending upon who you are, uh, if you choose to use a real location or a made-up location. It's a lot easier. I don't know. For me, it's easier to just find all these plot points by researching an actual real location than just kind of pulling them out of the air and kind of working to fit them all together to be consistent uh, I'm, a, I'm a little of column A and a little co- of column B I think um, I really don't mind if I take a setting and change it to how I want it to be um, often I've played in cities that I've never been to Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's ever had a detrimental effect um, so sometimes I feel that, you know, making stuff up to fit in and just making history up as you go along to fit in with your campaign, there's nothing wrong with that either. Well, this, this I think, related to that is that I make, in my World of Darkness Manchester setting, I make the IRA bomb of 96 a little bit bigger because it's the World of Darkness and, you know, yeah. I'm not... I'm not being I'm not being uh, disrespectful. I'm just saying like I'm just kind of making the point that you know horrible events occur and in the world of darkness these horrible events are just worse and yeah. and want to colour how take take that kind of that that uh, event and kind of magnify it and show how it influences the city. So you can you can definitely do that with um, real world events like you know if it's some historical kind of thing such as a particular um, medieval battle or, or something like that, say, in, during, like, the English Civil War. Um, just how, If you want five times more people to have died during that event, because it means there's even more ghosts there and whatever's dealing with the ghosts there and making use of them, then fine, do that. If it just makes it that much darker and, and grim, then I think there's no reason to do... There's no reason you can't do that. No, because it's your game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so NPCs. How many NPCs do you think do you, do you generally kind of make for your game? I mean, James, have you started kind of putting together some NPCs for your game? Um, NPCs are usually they're the thing that I hate the most. Right. Okay. Because um, I mean, certainly when I used to run uh, games like Dungeons and Dragons, for example, you always had to figure out like a stat line for someone and skills because you know you never knew when a player was going to decide to spontaneously attack someone and then you had to have spells all sorted out before and it was it was like a lot of work that went on every time whereas um, for World of Darkness you don't there's not as much stuff you can quite happily give look at someone and go okay you know they're 
they they using they're trying to use a computer. They'll, they'll probably be reasonably good, so maybe a two. Yeah, you know, you you don't actually have to. I guess because it's not so interdependent as as much. You don't have to have every tiny nuance of um of like a stat sheet hammered out as long as you have an idea of who the person is. Well, the thing that that um a lot of World of Darkness setting books do quite well, the ones that are pre-made, um, they present characters in, I would say, three different ways. You'll okay. have one which kind of has, this is a character, this is what they're meant for, and this is a dice pool, and this is more than likely the only dice pool, or two dice pools, that they will ever use when interacting with the player characters. Yeah. Okay? Okay. And then you have a character which is a little bit more fleshed out, so it's more like your typical combatant. So, for example, the NPC characters that pre-made in the back of the World of Darkness core book, they are more fleshed out. They have all their combat stats and all their defensive stats detailed. And anything else that might be interesting, so obviously a police officer might have, you know, has... Things like investigation skill, and they've also got intimidation. Because again, those are things that they will make use of. And then finally, you have the NPC that has that is essentially a glorified player character that has everything in every little detail. And you have every single merit they have, and you have every single flaw written down for them. If you play an old World of Darkness, you've got all their merits and flaws there. You've got you've got the works. So it's it's a it's an adjustable scale of detail. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I I think that's why um, Damnation City, which I think you talked about last time, yeah, presents you with a whole bunch of these templates that you can just pull out and use that are very generalised and just have a few stats chucked down. There's no there's no yeah. depth behind it. You know, there is a little uh, other section in the same book that gives those things a bit more depth. But if you don't need it, you just need a stat for ten cops. Sure, boom, done. You, know, you don't want to be messing around, like, going into each cop's detailed history, because <laughs> that's yeah. going to be pretty time-consuming and pretty boring. But if you, if you need those, those templates are, are there. I mean, that's why that book, especially, if you're building any kind of chronicle for the world of darkness, old or new, buy it. Buy it now. Mm-hmm. And I think the good, good thing about, like, the way, you, as I say, you have these templates is if you need to have a police officer turn up Again, or whichever combatant that is slightly more or less dangerous or troublesome in whatever way, it's very easy to immediately change that by adding or minusing off a die here or there, or just giving them a specialization, for example. Just so you've got that level of variation, but also essentially all police officers at a certain level are the same, because the World Darkness system is abstract in that level, in that way. Yeah. And that's the same for any World of Darkness game, they're all abstract in that way. And I wish Exalted was more like that way in some respects, because that gives me a headache. But that's a, that's a game that's on a related system. That's one where you, where you do get the D&D problem, where you really need to have everything detailed. But, yeah. And you need, you need to spend about £100 on dice. <laughs> yes. Um, cool. Uh, how many NPCs, though, do you think 
do you would would you say is the best point to start having um, that you need to have detailed though to get your setting to feel like it has some depth and that you actually have some some NPCs that that mean something that are interacting with each other in the setting to create your plot and an injury. I would say the 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 the, the nice number is maybe around about. I would say starting at somewhere from. I want to say around about ten. Mm. Purely because I would make these characters say again. Let's use vampires as the example. These detailed NPCs are, are like say. Again, characters that you think will be turning up. On a nigh constant basis, and um, they have, and they're also representative. So you don't need to have the entire uh, rival coterie detailed immediately. Maybe you only need to have their their leader detailed up. Yeah. And from that, you can always do well. I need the stats for the other characters in his coterie. I can just I know how to vary it because I know that I can just swap out one discipline for another discipline, and so mm. forth. Well, well, another way that you can do that is, like you said, just have points of contact. So mm. if you hear uh, about a coterie of other vampires that like like we've been talking about in and amongst your city, and the group wants to go and talk to them, you're like, okay, then you can talk to one of them. And they're going to meet you here. And all you need to do is have a clear idea in your head of one guy. Yes. You can go away that week and do what you need to do to flesh out the rest of them. So the rest out, you know, you can then expand it as you're going along rather than knowing that there are these people in the or these groups of people and then going in and look at those groups in detail as your your group looks at them in detail. That's another technique you can do. But that's yeah. actually quite a good thing to say, actually, is don't be afraid to kind of stall your players in a way that is useful to make your life easier. Yeah. Whether it is a brief timeout in the game, mm-hmm. or if you think you want to stall them so you can have time to do a bit more preparation. My, my particular way of stalling someone would be to, um, to, do, to get them to do, like, is to role-play out some more mundane things to get more into, like, what it means to be this particular character because obviously A, it fills game time B, you learn something new about the character C, it's, it's good role playing and D, it gives you time ne- the weekend the next week to prepare the notes that you didn't have ready beforehand mm. yeah, that's, that's cool and I, I, I do like the idea as well of the, um, the points of contact because it means that you can if your chronicle does kind of take a direction that you necessarily hadn't thought about, then you can, you know, you have that, you can still move forwards without having to, uh, like, desperately backpedal and try and put, like, a, a massive artificial barrier in the way. This is a really handy... I'm, I'm, making, I'm making notes while we're talking. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's the, the other thing would be also... Um, have you can always have prepared though uh, some generic templates as well, and then when they go off to talk to Bob the Gangrel, who happens to actually be into say horticulture, say okay. you don't have any stats on you were like shit. I don't have a guy that's into horticulture who makes ma- you know mandragora and so forth. I had nothing for that. 
but I had him as a as an interesting character idea. But what you do have is you have a pre-made gangrel stat line like character somewhere, right? Which is either another NPC of equivalent power or another vampire of equivalent power that isn't a gangrel, which it wouldn't take too much work to just go to swap out the stats then and there. Because it you know, it doesn't take a genius to go, oh fine, just give him protein three instead of majesty. And you know, you do that quick switch around. It doesn't matter if it's not a combat situation, because obviously the players aren't going to know too much, as long as you've got an idea of who the character is and what he is and what's going on there. But at least it gives you a basis then to work from to have the character ready for the next time he shows up. So the idea of having a, a few kind of either blank slates to work from I say not blank slates, uh, frameworks to work from, or or just choosing another NPC as a framework to work from is really useful. This is why I like, actually, this is why I like certain setting books that are already pre-made by White Wolf. I, like, Water Dark in Chicago at one point was always sat next to me because I was like, shit, I know I'm not going to have a character ready for this, but if I flick through quickly, I've got someone that has stat lines about what I need to make me feel like I've got something I can work with. Hmm. Another great thing, if you want to go down that route, um, White Wolf also has pre-made player characters for for um, their Storyteller Adventure system. So you can go out there and find on PDF uh, coteries, packs, uh, you know, whatnot, with five or more, about five or so um, uh, characters ready for players to use. That doesn't mean they can't be NPCs of a rival coterie, or a rival pack, or a rival um, a rival cabal of uh, mages. Mm. So yeah. yeah, if you can make your life easier, make it easier. <laughs> Definitely. But this ties in again to the, the background, you know, the, the work already now we've talked about background, so you've done a whole chunk of homework on looking at the city, writing your plot. Now we're talking about making characters and like it. This is all paperwork, guys. This 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 will take you a while. Don't don't think that you can knock out a campaign, you know, in a week unless you want it to feel like it's knocked out in a week. Yeah. The amount of time you put into it will be reflected in it. You know, and your your group will notice, I think, if you don't give everything your your full attention, if that makes any sense. If it's not ready, if it's not ready, or you don't feel comfortable inserting it, then stall again. Because there's nothing wrong with people not turning up to meetings for no reason. Why didn't they come? Perhaps they didn't, you know, got a bit uh, uh, concerned that you were going to actually try to attack them, or they were um, standoffish, or something else happened that delayed them. That you could then take a step back and think about it again, and give yourself another week to look at things. Um, cool. Okay. So, the other thing that's also useful that helps guiding the creation of NPCs is, of course, the web of intrigue. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to focus on a web of intrigue, um, or the concept of web of intrigue, because fundamentally, whether people run... This is the thing, whether people run World of Darkness games this way or not... The fact is, World of Darkness games are presented in a way that they are quite social and involve so many social groups within the games that have intrigue going on between them. The question being, of course, how obvious that intrigue is. But, um, and I think 
having a, having it, when you're preparing your games, um, having a well laid, having your web of intrigue there being created and you're building it up and you're creating these connections also helps guide you with NPCs because you may realise that either you need to have more detail on an NPC or you actually need an NPC to fulfil a certain role within your web of intrigue. I'm trying to think of a good example of a web of intrigue where people can go look at one. Um, the back of most uh, most World of Darkness uh, setting books have them. But essentially a web of intrigue is um, boxes with your NPCs' names in them, and between them are lines connecting how... Um, and these lines represent whether they have strong interactions between each other, and along these lines there are descriptions of what these interactions are. So it could be John hates Bob, and Bob loves Carla, but Carla, you know, is friends with John. And as you build up these these uh, connections with more and more characters, you begin to see that, that suddenly what emerges is a very complicated network where if, you, if your player characters were to put pressure on one character, it could have an influence on other characters. And that's quite important, I think, to have in a game. Whether you've got it explicitly written down, or it's at least in your head, I think a web of intrigue is quite helpful. Again, to give the sense of depth to your game. Steve, I imagine you make use of something like that. Yeah, well, I remember, like you, uh, the Chicago Chronicles coming out, and they had quite nice web of intrigues. They used to break it down into uh, little groups, which yeah. I still do to this day. Um, so you have, perhaps on a city-wide scale, you have groups of individuals, say, like in an old World of Darkness setting, say the Anarchs, the Ancilla, the Elders. The relationship between all of those three. And then look at that group, and then all the individuals within that group, so people can appear on multiple different webs of intrigue. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it stops the city-wide kind of web of intrigue being so busy, if that makes any sense. Yes. Because if you've got all your subplots and all your plots all linked together or all on one piece of paper, mm-hmm. it tends to be a lot of points. All the, all, it looks like a mess. It yeah. looks like a mess, but it's an ordered chaos because it makes sense to you. Um, I, think I, like also to, I like to, to take away from that and just look at the different bits and pieces in a smaller way rather than look at the big picture sometimes. The great thing about Web of Intrigue as well is, say when you're starting out creating your setting, you have one key plot in mind. Mm-hmm. The Web of Intrigue can also guide you on how other plots, subplots, can emerge and how you can see, you can, you can find subplots that you didn't realise were initially there. So it, it's kind of, it's quite a good, um, it's very emergent, um, the type of gameplay that you can you can get out of it by, by working with uh, a web of intrigue. Um, I don't know, James, is, have you made use of that before in any other gaming, or have you... Are you I ready? am notoriously bad, well, no, I'm, I'm pretty bad with the politics side of things. I generally, as, as a player, I pretty much deal with like oh there is a thing like, you know there is a task in front of me there's a problem um, and I'll I'll deal with it um, so I feel quite uncomfortable um, coming up with webs of intrigue and things um, usually I, I like to have a, like a very clear goal that people are pursuing but I suppose I suppose that's why maybe that's the real reason why I uh, 
I've always gone with D&D before, because generally it's quite easy to have, like, oh, there's a demon, and it's summoning, you know, its followers are going to summon but it, you need to stop it. I think, I think what you've confused, though, and this is something quite important, is that the, what you, the information you're aware of as, an, as, a, as a storyteller or games master or whatever, when you have a web of intrigue, when you, when you see the web of intrigue, you see all of, it, all of its intricacies and all of its connections... What you then pr- and you say the problem is that you want to provide something to the players that seems very clear cut. Like so, because this is the thing you're worrying about is what do you do for the first game? You want to get the players into the action, and the thing is, the players don't see that entire web of intrigue. You've got to consider there is a mask upon it, and they only see a few of the actual connections. And when you do that, it seems very clear cut to them that they go, "We need to kill this guy." This guy is pissing off this guy. That's why we're doing it. What they don't realise is if they do that, they will actually kick up a whole nest of vipers at the same time. So the, uh, that's, that's the advice I'm giving. Is that if, if your web of intrigue does look complicated, realise that your players are not privy to that one bit. Yeah. Hmm. I think another thing to do is to look at your characters your NPC characters and before the group enters the city there is a kind of status quo for want of a better word or state of flux depending on if you want to enter into a, a shitstorm before you guys <laughs> even get there but anyway um, there is something already happening in your city yeah? Yeah. the way I always look at players is they are at that point totally neutral or mm-hmm. seemingly totally neutral so the first thing I, I think all NPCs, all NPCs should be in a world of darkness then is, at first, friendly. Because what's the point in bearing your fangs and using all your disciplines of the first vampire that turns up to say, all right, I'm new here. <laughs> all right, then let's kick off. Why would you do that? Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you never know whether you'll be able to get a chance to use someone. Exactly. Uh, the the people <laughs> are just a bunch of mooks who can come in and literally do something and don't know what they're doing because I will give you this seemingly important bauble and you go off and kill my, my rival, which, you know, yeah. leaves me to- totally scot-free, but you're into it up to your neck. Well, never mind, eh? Uh, yeah. that's, that's something quite, quite important, is to, in order to give your players um, something to work towards, obviously to get them into the game, to get them involved, mm-hmm. is you need to have either the following things. You need to have one or more Gandalfs within your collection of NPCs. These being people that will go to the to your player characters and go, I need you to do this. Whether they're going to screw over your players at the end or not is another matter entirely up to you. Mm. The other thing is, if you happen to have a player in your group that is happy with or is experienced with what you're doing, with, with playing the game, by all means, they can be the Gandalf. It requires a certain level of player trust that someone's actually in charge. Often that makes life a bit easier. But to have a player character being the Gandalf, going, I'm in this city because I want to do this, this, this. You're my group of employees, to want another, you know, another term I don't know. But you know, they're the, the other players are the mooks they've kind of got hold of for whatever reason. And they're all then working on the same job. It means 
you know, you're relying on a player to give you di- a bit more direction on your chronicle, as in you go, well, your character's done this now, what's his next step in his plans? Because then that gives you plot to the rest of the other players. But you you need to have those kind of, like, Gandalf characters. My my players are all going to be pretty good for you. Um, and definitely, like, um... That's not a bad thing, though. If they're pretty new to role-playing, that's not a bad thing. With oh, no, the... but for, for having them as Gandalfs. Like, I'd yeah, think yeah. I would rather have... Um, I'd rather have some path to, path to set them toddling along. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be straightforward with them, to begin with. Give them... Give them one Gandalf for, like, uh, the first few episodes, so it gives them some direction. Let them have another Gandalf. See who they prefer. That may give you some ideas with things. And then it's up to you whether you want to... Yeah, you see where you go with that. If one of them, one of the Gandalfs annoys the group of players, then fine. You know, you've got to um, see what they like. Mm. Cool. I we think a lot there. Yeah, carry oh. on, Steve. Well, yeah, well, Dee's idea of Gandalf, I think, uh, I think the term would be a, bit, a little, little bit better, perhaps mentor-esque character. Yeah. Because Gandalf's got this idea of a lovely old fuzzy fellow yes, that's going to yeah. really help. Yeah, right, okay. Um, I think that's the other thing as well, to mix things up for the players. Once, once you feel that they, they're standing on their feet, uh, remove all these Gandalf characters away from them somehow. Yeah. To, to, to make them stand on their own feet and start making decisions. Otherwise, you'll end up with them just saying, "Okay, then that's great." But what's Gandalf doing? Yeah, oh, he, yeah. He's 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 gonna he's gonna he's gonna say, "Chuck his lot in with the Order of Dracul." Okay, then we're gonna do that. But we don't. None of us want to do that. None of us think that's a good idea. But hey, that's what our mentor's doing. So that's what we're gonna do. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's it, the that's the thing. It's being able to take off the the. I wouldn't say training wheels, but take away some of that guidance because mm-hmm. obviously when when the games get where the game gets more interesting is where you've finally got the players to be proactive rather than reactive. And this goes back to the whole thing about the about how you set up your plot. And we were talking about the, the null hypothesis of a plot where your plot is laid out such that where, where you have not considered the players interacting with it whatsoever. These are just the events that will happen if the players did absolutely jack all. Mm-hmm. And it then becomes more fun is when you've finally got the players into the plot, you've got someone telling them what to do, and then the players are at this point of like, well, why do we need to wait for someone to tell us what to do? Why do we, we know what's going on, or at least they think they know what's going on, why don't we just get it done now before it happens later? And, you know, that's what you want to have happen, is you want to kind of slowly guide the players to the point of being proactive rather than reactive with your plot. Because that's where it's fun. That's, yeah. when, that's when the curveballs come out. You suddenly, you're suddenly looking at your players like going, you're going off to kill him? Now? And you look at your notes and go, shit, okay. if they do this, this <laughs> changes everything. Mm. Yeah, but then that's, that's, that's what, the fun, fun of GMing. Yeah. That's, that's all storytelling. That's, that's where it's the fun side. And that's where some, some people lose that as well, that, you know, oh, I've got to do this, and it's got to be this, and it's got to be that. It doesn't have to be anything. It just needs to be fun. Yeah. Okay. That's all you've got to do. So. Um, the next bit I wanted to move on to is, is there a point where, in this preparation, we're going to assume you're, you're still getting your settings sorted out, you've got your NPCs, you've got your web of intrigue, you've, you've researched possibly all the way back to whenever with Sheffield or, or, uh, or San Francisco or whichever city or uh, Mozambique or wherever you're setting your game. 
Um, when is there too much? Um, you know, and when I say this, I, know, I don't just mean the setting itself or the NPCs, the web of interest. I mean also all those optional bits in all the other books, because this, this goes for old and new world of darkness. There is a lot of extras, and they are all completely optional. Uh, even though some people may treat them as they're all completely required. You know, do you, do you need all the other splats in your setting? Do you really need to consider what the mage is doing in your vampire game? Maybe you do, maybe you don't want to. Um, do you really want every single bloodline as an option in your setting? Do you really want players to turn up playing, oh, I don't know, uh, one of the Burakarmen, for example? Do you need to make use of all of the rules in all the books? Um, it may not even be feasible because some of the rules are quite conflicting. And also, we'll deal with that to begin with. There's something else I want to want to get to a bit later with too much, and that's more interesting. So we'll start with too much from material that's provided or that you've created. James, considering you're you're putting stuff together, mm-hmm. you're dealing with Mage: The Awakening. Are there books that you've looked at and gone no? I do not want to deal with any of that. That's far too much, or it's far too complicated, or it really would screw up the type of game I would want to play or run. Um, I'm actually quite a minimalist in that I would rather run with no additional books if I can possibly help it. Okay. Um, Like, I... Especially, I mean, as an introduction thing as well, I think it helps me keep myself on on the level. I I might read a book dealing with um, like the Sears and the Throne book for example um, I might yeah. read it but I I won't try and pull stuff from it to the game unless I think it will really really help out so I'm I'm probably going to look at um, one of the uh, the Book of Spirits Book of Spirits New World of Darkness uh, yeah one of the blue books which is awesome <laughs> yeah because I you know, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about ghosts, and that that'll be handy. Um, oh, hold on, hold on a minute. Then um, you mean uh, not book of spirits? You mean book of the dead? Okay. Obviously, yeah, yeah. Because if you're dealing with if you de- if you're going to deal with spirits and ghosts um, for your thing, you want possibly look at ghost stories. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one. You've, you've, yeah, you have looked. That's one that's got Terrible Tale of James Magnus, so it has a few other new, uh, Numina in there. Uh, but also, yeah, Book of Spirits and Book of the Dead. Because, of course, all the things that he, all the Numina that spirits can use, you can also use as powers for ghosts, because the, the rule's completely transferable in that sense. Um, okay, so you're keeping it minimalistic. Well, that's fine, because I totally understand that. Because looking just across the living room from me, I can see my mage book. Awakening, and it's bloody thick. There's a lot of stuff in there. Like, and I've said this in the last Darkling with Changeling. I've not used all of the stuff out of that main book before. Yeah, that's before even talking about any of the add-on books. Like, there's a lot of stuff in some of these core books, and using every single rule out there and getting the getting the most of the content out of a core book is quite a challenge. Um, Steve? Well, I agree. Uh, I'm just, like you now, I'm just having a look at my roleplay shelf and just observing the difference between the size of the Wraith of the Oblivion, sort of second edition book, uh, to the Exalted book, which is, you know, another mighty tome. 
these days, you know, role-play books tend to be packed out and white wolf are always, you know, notorious for giving you a lot of uh, information to use straight off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, I, on the other hand, much prefer to have all the other stuff at my fingertips if I need it, if my group decides to go in that way. I can pick yeah. up a book and it gives me inspiration. So if that book then speaks to me, I don't know if you get a player that decides, oh, he wants to go uh, looking for an ancient relic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can pick up Reliquy. Yeah. Just flip through it, see something that kind of speaks to you, pick it up, take it away, use it. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Or just flicking through that book to come up with my own idea for a relic. And then just putting that book down on the shelf and just using it as an inspirational tool rather than word for word, power for power, insert. The other thing I was getting at, though, with this is also um, with the whole different bloodlines and so forth is that... So, for example, with the vampire game we ran, most of the, you know, predominantly all the players were playing characters that were all Carthians. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it can be perceived that all these books have all these options and a, pl- and a player is allowed to play anything he wants. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. It may not all fit together and make a consistent setting or, or just is not balanced and is actually a complete headache for the, the storyteller. So, would I allow all the bloodlines to be usable in my chronicle from Bloodlines to Hidden? God, no. Some of them I freaking hate. Um, so, I don't think a storyteller should be afraid of saying, no, you cannot play in this chronicle uh, Werewolves of the Blood Talons, for example. Uh, no, you cannot be, uh, you can't be changelings of the Autumn Court, or all your characters are changelings of the Autumn Court, because by doing that, it means that I feel as a as a storyteller, it means it gives me a bit more control over what options the players are having, and I can be a bit more focused on certain plots. And it also means you can also get the group to be to be gelled together a lot more. You can funnel them so that they have a lot more in common, so they so it makes sense for why they're together. Yet while you still allow enough options so that their characters are individuals. Yeah, I guess if you if your main plot that you want to run is that like the Autumn Court, we're going to take over the city. Having everyone, or having a couple of, one person from the Autumn Court, they're, they're likely to be like, hang on a minute, wait, 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 I'm not so worried about that as an option. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, that makes yeah. sense. You, you, it's, sometimes you've got to be careful like what you feel should be included in the game. I mean, it could be, it could come across as, I mean, I guess Old Order Darkness may have a, have a, have this problem a lot, is that there's, Possibly some people have the expectation that everything in every book is a valid option for mm. creating their character, when really that's going to cause a lot of headaches for what you're wanting to run. Mm. I always use the rule of thumb that if somebody wants to run something so desperately because they really want to do something, often it's, it's based out of two things, and one's good and one's bad. <laughs> yeah. The good one for me is they see an interesting thing that they can do with that character because that kind of bloodline, sect, mage, werewolf, whatever, speaks to them. And they come up with this interesting character that has got a lot of thought into it. And also adds something amazing to your chronicle that you hadn't thought of either. Exactly. If, if your player then, on the other side of that, you know, if your player turns around and says, I want it for this power, it's like, no. Don't be afraid, like you say, don't be afraid to just say, no, mate. You know, yeah. just for that one power. Yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the other problem. Uh, I think that again, 
you always when you when you're writing anything for a game, always have your players in mind. You know, if you've got a guy who wants to go around every week kicking somebody's ass, he's going to be pretty upset if he's got to sit around and talk to a bunch of uh, higher ups all evening and doesn't get to kick someone's ass. So you've got to think about what your players want, not just what you know you want as well. If that makes any sense. Mm. The other thing I would say with that, because this gets into, um, this obviously is leading us into the idea that, you know, you need your players, or how, how much information do you need your players to provide you about that character uh, beforehand for writing your chronicle, um, is that there's also, a, I would say, is there, a, what's the, the theme of how much information you need your players to read beforehand for a game? I'm of the theme of, like, if the players have got an idea of what type of character they want to play, whether, you know, the person first before you even add on the are they a vampire or a werewolf or anything mm. um, is that I usually listen to them first about what kind of thing they want to play and then present them the the options and the information relevant with that character concept rather than going you want to play a Deva, so you need to go off now and read the entirety of the Deva clan book it's like, whoa, that's... If they want to read it eventually, I feel fine, but I don't... I think there's enough stuff on wikis and so forth that uh, uh, a storyteller can be can, can guide players to read the relevant information. I don't think they need to know the entire history of the Tremere back to year dot in order to make a valid Tremere character. I think they just need to know the relevant information that is who is their character as a mortal beforehand, who sired them, and what were the reasons for that, and where do they fit into society at that point in time? And also, how do you feel about that? Yeah, because that's sometimes the, the thing that you know a lot of people forget is like, so this has happened, and this has happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Hardly ever do you see, and then I felt this, and then I felt that, and then yeah. I felt it. It's like, okay, well, how do you feel about all that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got turned into a bloody werewolf. How do you feel about it? Don't know. I can lick my balls now. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I've been, I've been a vampire for five thousand years, but I've not really thought of it. Very much. Five thousands a long bloody time. I've seen, I've seen character information. Be it player, player provided uh, character information of various degrees. So either I get. Paragraph from paragraph from paragraph of excellent background material, and I write my own, like, as much as I can feasibly write. Or I get, say, a paragraph or two, which is enough. Like, you get the feel for the character and why they're, who they are, and you know the rest will mostly come out of the player as they're playing, as they go, oh, well, they did this, and it's like, oh, well, that's fine, that's brilliant, you know, it fits with what you've already written. And then I've also had the case where you've had a person turn up to a game, they go, well, this is what I'm playing, that's the character concept. And it's like, I don't really know your character. And then they start doing things. You're like going, what the hell is going on? This character makes no sense. Even though they said, I was going to, you know, they're going to kind of like work out who their character is through play. I'm all for like, you can learn more things about your character. Maybe through playing the game and that you may want to perhaps retroactively change certain things about your character. So you realize what you originally planned wasn't quite what you wanted to play. Because... Yeah, writing out a character and then playing it are two very different things. So um, I think that there's quite a there's quite a range of like how much information players can provide, and there's a certain amount I would would say is a requirement for me to run a game for them. I agree because you need to make plot hooks 
or subplots and main plots off of those characters. You need yeah. you need something to get characters caring about things. Uh, as soon as your players begin to get, I don't know, uh, you've probably had this, Chris, when uh, you've done something in the game and somebody's gone, <gasps> yeah, it's like, you're, you know for that person, it's like, you're in the game now, you know exactly what's going on, it's then entertaining. If, yeah. if, you're in, you know, if you don't have that, all your players do is just go, yeah, okay, so what else is new? Okay. I have had the, um, the thing that I always get sick of, and this is my... This is my bugbear of everything, and I'm sure this turns up for loads of storytellers. Is I'm sick of always seeing characters that don't have any fucking family. Uh, it's just like that have no ties to the world other than I am this supernatural thing, and I am with this faction. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, so what? But what do you do outside of that? You know, do you, do you have a wife? Do you have a girlfriend? Boyfriend? Pet? You know. A mage is allowed to have no family. They could actually have a pet. And if they have a pet, as a storyteller, I'd like to think they might have something they're emotionally attached to that I could kill. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, l- look at the dog in um, uh, I Am Legend. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a classic example. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, all, I would say always be worried about a, player, about a player character that turns up that has no emotional attachment to... to Anything. It could, I mean, let's, in all sense. It's almost as bad as amnesia, isn't it? You know, well, yeah. The, the hero drifts in, doesn't know where he's from. It doesn't have to also be um, emotional attachment, though, to a person or an animal. It could even be a place or an object. That it still means they have, there's something they're invested in, in the world. I was thinking, like, um, as you were saying, like, a, a, an attachment doesn't have to be to a person. It could be to a place. You could have, for example, a... Um, a vampire or something who got turned hundreds of years ago, but he still goes to his local, yeah, his local pub. Um, you know, initially he's going for a different sort of drink nowadays. Uh. <laughs> you know, he could literally be going there though and spending the blood point. You know, the you know he's using the power of the blood just so he can sip at his favourite pint, just so he can bring back those foggy memories he has. I mean. And that, that's, um, you know, that's really cool because that leads on to the idea that player characters, one of the things I always like to have from player characters, and also in NPCs, quirks. Quirks mm. are great. But we, we can talk about that in a mi- bit more in a minute. Um, you going to say, Steve? Uh, I was just going to say that when you have uh, these, these kind of concept with characters, I always find that just taking the player aside out of game, I mean, for those who are old enough, go down the pub, I just have a chat about the character to you two kind of exchange you know what what some people are really bad at sitting down and writing down what they mean yeah and other people are really good at it i find the people who are bad at it just just would rather tell you and you need to make your own notes from that so don't be surprised if you need to take one or two of your players out of the game away from everyone else where they can just on one-on-one chat like i say chat down the pub over a couple of pints with your characters you, know, you can get a lot fleshed out really quickly that you can expand upon for your player that otherwise you wouldn't have had. So that's another way of uh, dealing with your character background is how you how you get it delivered to you, rather than have somebody write down something. Like um, like a lot of my friends, we're not in academic uh, lines of work; we're in kind of more manual kind of work. So you know we don't sit at computers all day. Yeah. So it, you know you know what I mean. If for us, it's like <gasps> okay, but but then going down the pub and having a chat, getting all your notes on your iPhone or whatever great, you've got it done, and you've got that understanding between each other, and that's that's all you're looking for. Cool. So, we've talked a lot about what to, how much is too much, maybe, in a game. Um, mm. 
and extra books and so forth. Uh, next up, though, is plot-wise. Now, we've already talked about um, plotting and subplots and that you can take from NPCs and characters and create your main plots and subplots. And so these are events that you string out. And we talked about the null hypothesis, which is where the, you've got the string of events and how they intertwine, assuming the players don't perturb them by taking action at some point along that that series of events that, that stretches on into the future. But then, is there a point where you can have too many plots and it is too complex? I think definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, if your group is presented with too many options too quickly, they, they're just numb to everything else. They just they just get lost in the kind of depth of it and they just feel so frightened to do anything because they don't understand just for you, you've written it. You, know, you understand all these little injuries and that. Um, and sometimes it is a good idea just to look at your work and say, perhaps if it's a great subplot, is it is it really going to be needed if the plot, and you've got a couple of other subplots running as well, a third or fourth subplot, things yeah. get a bit sticky. You know. mm. It's a case of stepping back and looking at it, looking at it as a whole. Um, yeah. Also, I think one of the things is important to foster in players is that it's okay to take risks with these plots mm-hmm. to to try and like just try and show them that if they think they can push forward with a plot and try and resolve something or at least go down a line of uh, of investigation and they're afraid of going down that route because it may actually cause a lot more trouble for them it's still to to show that you know they're not going to get anything done unless they take a risk so I would say with that example is maybe let them take the risk. If it does screw up, fine, it does screw up. But also make it a screw up that's kind of like they become someone's enemy, yet also at the same time maybe gain a new ally who hates that person as well, which may mean that setting with, with, with regards to the players as they interact with it is maybe a bit more complicated because now they've got one brand new enemy and they've got a new ally here and someone that they a new person is now on their scopes that they don't know where they sit. But at least at least you need to show them that because they've taken the risk, they have pushed the plot on. They have revealed things and they've resolved things and they now have a feel for, for what risks they can take and can't take. I think that's really important to drive into um, players is, is being able to feel like they can push the plot forward. But also, if you if you do think things have got too complicated, is maybe in character have the character sit down and, and with a with an NPC who isn't quite telling them what to do, but at least listening to them and going, well, I think you should do this. At least then, as a storyteller, you can go, you're kind of telling them what to do without telling them what to do. Yeah, you know, you're doing it through kind of a more of a role play exercise. Related to that, whether it can be too complex, and of course, I think the other thing that we should say about being too complex is also if you think you should simplify it as you're playing things, by all means do so. I think, uh, you know when you can have players have, a group of players has a a theory on a salute on what's going on? Yeah. If you think that's completely valid and you think maybe that's the better thing to run with because what you're doing they will never get, maybe try and move your plot more towards what their idea of the plot is. Yeah. Because Otherwise, they're not going to get anywhere. You know, it's, it's all about kind of meeting halfway with, with players. But what I was going to say is the length, of, um, the length of the chronicle, have you 
underestimated the length of it, or is it you know is it too short or too long? Because I kind of like I know I I know kind of like what type of large plot line I want to want to tell, but also I don't want it to drag on too long in real world time because you know you want to play other games and so forth, and I think it's it's important to be aware of of the length of a chronicle in real world times. I think that depends on the complexity of the story that you want to tell. Yeah. If you if you want to do a, a four session, boom, there it is, done and finished. That's great because it'll be exactly what you want. Perhaps then again, like my players, uh, what they want is things that go on for years. We're running a campaign that's going on for like, about eighteen months now. Right. So so they want to play for a long time, mm. but. What I'm finding is the level of complexity is building up by just drip-feeding it to them. Yeah. And then that complexity builds up as they understand each layer. And I'm taking an approach now where I kind of look at things where if if a player does something, give them the idea of a reward or a consequence. So really stupid ideas, make them pay for it. What's wrong with that? You know, if you want to go out and you want to go and attack the prince of the city, because, yeah, that's what I want to do tonight. Okay. Let's roll. Yeah, let's play. And have that character beaten seven ways for Sunday because it shows everyone else that there are NPCs to be feared or to be wary of. So mm-hmm. if, you know, you can do that kind of thing as well. You know, Consequences. These, it's all about consequences mm, and showing players mm, that there are consequences to their actions. Be uh, they good or, good or bad, you know. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, all, it's all about perception. Because a good, a good outcome for you could be truly horrendous for somebody else. And then that's that's how your plot then goes on. And perhaps then, rather than having many, many subplots running at the same time, they kind of appear, get sorted out, and then disappear. More like if you're willing to play in an episodic kind of way. Yeah. So each each session you you look at a different part. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. I kind of I kind of like that as an idea. The um, idea because with um, talk about the, the having multiple subplots and things and then single plots. Uh, I I've played a lot of Skyrim recently and it got to the point where I got fed up with being given too much shit to do that I couldn't tell what I couldn't tell how I was meant to continue with the main quest because mm-hmm. every single person you walk past is like I've left my shoes in an abandoned temple can you go and pick them up for me <laughs> that's no. why I got annoyed with Fallout 3 it gives you it, it just goes here's everything to do and it's just like it just builds up too quickly. You want to be able to feel like you can take things to a resolution, you know. And that that's what keeps player interest in in tabletop games is is kind of like have them you resolve things while something else is still going on, and it, you've you've constantly renewing their interest rather than going here is everything that's going on. As you said, you know, everyone's kind of like shouting at you to do things. Yeah. You can't you can't walk down the street without someone having given you a quest just because you walked by them. And it's like, I don't want it. I just want to kill some fucking dragons. Pardon my language. That's all right. Don't um, need to worry about it here on darker days where we fly by the seat of our pants with language. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Um, the next thing I was going to move on with because we talked about uh, players and choices that you allow for them. Um, a very important thing which I uh, that. People are dis- I found it quite dismissive of this book, but I think it's quite useful because it presents some nice ideas in there. Um, so, Vampire the Requiem had one, uh, one early uh, book came out, for it, which was Coteries. 
which was interesting because it presented different styles of coteries. Like, either they'd be bound together because their elders are all friends, their, their sires are all friends, or they're actually some sort of task force or something. Um, and what that book is representative is the idea of something which um, listeners of Fear the Boot will be quite happy with um, this term, which is the group template. So essentially, is when you've got players creating characters, they shouldn't be quite doing it in a vacuum. They should also be considerate of what you as a storyteller want to allow, but also what other people are wanting to play, so that that as a group, it's not it's less to do with whether someone's going, well, I'm playing a gangrel, you can't play a gangrel. It's more to do with, does our group feel like they would actually get on and do things together, or will they be constantly bickering at each other? Hmm. What do you think? Hmm. I've, I've had um, a group before where one of our players always wanted to go to the police. <laughs> okay. Um, and that didn't really work because, like, you turn up to turn up to meet a bitch. Well, no, no. You you turn up to meet a contact, and you get like you break into the building that he's that you're meant to be meeting him in this abandoned building, and then when you get there, he's strewn all over the walls in a very thin layer of a sticky goo. And it's like, ah, uh, okay, let's just phone the police and tell them we've broken into this building and then found a dead body. I'm sure, I'm sure as mage is on the run, like, that can't go badly for any of us. And we, we um, we could, he ended up leaving our chronicle because he just couldn't handle, um, he couldn't, like, get himself in the, in the mindset that everyone else had where you go, like, okay, there's, there's certain things we can't do. We have to come up with a solution ourselves. Yeah. Um, and some, like, some people are keener to look outside that. I mean, he, the same guy plays Vampire, and in Vampire he can get it, because in Vampire you're, you've got past the point that you're human, or at least that you involve yourself that much in human stuff, so going to the police is less of an option. But... Hmm. Sorry, quite a curi- curious reaction for, like, in a mage game. Oh my god, this person's been turned to red mist. Let's call the police. Because that doesn't look dubious. Um, <laughs> and we got nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah nothing. Honest, Gov, we just broke in here and found this guy. <laughs> there was nothing but me everywhere. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, anyway, group templates, Steve. Yeah. Um, do you kind of do the same sort of thing? Well, um, I must admit that. I think the, the name is a new kind of uh, idea for me, but uh, I, 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 get, I, I think I get what, you, and what you're talking about. It was that idea of, like, in AD&D, where you have the fighter, the thief, the mage, the cleric. They've all got their little individual roles to play. And does the group really, really need doubling up in that role? Well, I think it's it's that, and also maybe in, in um, I think in, in Vampire, of course, where you can have possibly have multiple people have the same sort of role. As I say, like, you know, they could all be you could be playing a game where they're say all members of the Auto Dracul and they're all actually researchers of some form. So they all work in a lab and the game's all about their their the, the fun and games of vampiric bio theoretical madness that they're researching. But the group template then is more of a focus on why do they actually Get get on together. What it, what is it beyond the fact that they're they're all Ordo Draco? They're all they may be 
and a few of them are from the same clan, and a few of them maybe are from the same city originally. It's it's more to do with like why why are they a group rather than going. You all arrive in a bar, and and the, and you you don't know each other, but you've got a mission to do. It's like but the characters that maybe in that case the players have written technically would hate the hell out of each other maybe or you know it causes more conflict. I think. It's important that you have maybe at the start a kind of inbuilt level of, of 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 the player characters being a team for whatever reason. Mm. I mean, even if it's just an obligation, you know, each of them each of them has been in big trouble, and someone has gotten out of it, and then he's making them do them all doing a favour. Well, you know, yeah, it doesn't have to be a like they all used to play baseball or something back when they were young. Yeah. Like uh, a comic book wise, what's a classic group template? The Suicide Squad from DC. Why do they Why do they work together? Because they've all got explosive collars around their necks. Mm-hmm. That's why they follow the mission. They have to follow the mission. And screwing with each other in game will not get them. Will not doesn't work for that group template. Yeah. Uh, I think an, another interesting technique to do is to each player will have. Like sort of, uh, if they've done the right thing and come to you with background of the things, it's things that need to be resolved for them. Why they're there? Exactly what we've just been talking about. Why they're there? What they've come here for? So, yeah. for instance, your ex-wife has been killed and your children have disappeared. Okay, you may be a mage, but you still might care about that. Or you, or you may be um, a vampire, but still care about that. You go in and, and uh, look at this kind of uh, uh, area. You don't know who to contact. And you give the information that that player needs to another player. Yeah. So they all have the answers to each other's initial secrets or initial problems. So to begin with, it's like, oh, right, well, I've heard about this dude. You know, he's a gangrel. Oh, I'm a gangrel. Yeah, but he knows something that you don't know. So it could give them a point to start from, a point to start a relationship. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't need to necessarily be good or bad, but it's a point to start from. So mm. That's really cool. Okay, I think that kind of resolves that idea. As I say, I think I think um, I think Coteries with Vampire the Requiem had a really good example of, of those kind of concepts there. Um, so finally, I think we really get into into the last bit of, of a chronicle outline, which is really beginning to write all this stuff together because. You've got now, and we've got like a, we've talked about. You've got your NPCs. You've done your assassin history. You've got a web of intrigue. You've decided that you're not going to use World of Darkness bogglings. Um, you're not going to use. Um, I would love to see a World of Darkness bogglings, by the way, if you remember the toys. Um, <laughs> um, a, and you've you've kind of you've got the, so I so said you've got a group template. You've decided and you've given certain limitations and freedoms on what things are allowing within the game and what rules are using. So you, you've decided that you're going to use you're going to play your game a bit more like uh, uh, what was it? It's in um, damn what was the what's the <laughs> what's the book that came out recently? I meant to re- re- uh, I need to review that one. Uh, Strange Dead Love has like got different remixes on Chronicles, and like you know, Mage Noir is a remix of that, and various other books have remixes on the basic Chronicles. Like even um, Steve, you remember in uh, Vampire the Masquerade in Revised, they brought out was it the Storyteller's 
handbook, or was it, or was it story, or was it storyteller's guide, which had all the different Vampire the Masquerade remixes, where say it gave you the option where there are no clans or those kind uh, of alterations. I think it's the storyteller's handbook. I know the book yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. exactly, you know, you, you've taken all, all these things into consideration in the creation of your chronicle. That's going towards the creation of your chronicle. And we're now finally into the bit which is um, writing the chronicle and your subplots and really thing, other things to really consider. Because we've got on here themes and moods and how to get them across to players. And that's mm-hmm. something you added in, Steve. So what were you wanting to say about that? Well, I always like to have a feel to what I'm doing. And that, that feel is easier to portray, you know, like you can watch certain movies, like, the, uh, say, I know a Ben Stiller movie, that's just going to make you laugh. It's got that kind of fuzzy feel to it. You yeah. watch a movie like Seven, that, that movie's got a different kind of feel, even the way that it's kind of shot, it's not, it's, it's quite pale, and the music's quite different and dramatic. And then using that to come across, I, I, I like to play dark games. I like to really take my group into the world of darkness. Uh, I've always been a big fan of kind of mature themes in a game like this because the books are littered with references to to mature themes. So, there, is, there, is there is there is, is, is I'm guessing your your the line that you don't cross is really 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 far then. Well, in the direction I, of dark. I take I take my I take my uh, my uh, my cue from one of the books that says if you intended to run a, a dark game, go to your players and tell them what you think you're going to put in. Yeah. Tell them before you start, yeah, because some people don't really want to be shocked, don't really want to think about stuff like that. If, you, if, I, if I come to you and say, I really want to play a game where we're going to look at things like drug addiction. Yeah. To be honest, to be honest, mate, I don't really want to explore that, thanks, because you don't want to explore it for whatever reason. Yeah? Fine, then we could just quietly put that aside, but still look at other aspects that are still quite dark. Yeah, uh, Sam isn't squeamish, and that's why her characters have always allowed me to... Um, to highlight the darker aspects of the world of darkness, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is always useful when you've got someone to back you up like that. Um, so, yeah, themes and moods, like, yeah, I definitely have the same thing, like, if I was to describe, like, there's different, I guess there's, there's, there's multiple different, uh, different themes and moods which relate to the chronicle I'm running. So there's a theme and mood for, say, the city and how I'm going to portray it. Mm-hmm. And then there is a theme and mood for the type of the, the the main plot arc that I'm going to run. Mm-hmm. And then there is a theme and mood for the type of stories for individual episodes I run. And also for subplots and also the things that I look at for individual player characters. So, you know, Manchester to me is red brick buildings of, from the Victorian period. Um, meeting the the steel and glass of the modern building, so it's all about kind of it's all about the new and old and juxtaposition, but not in a, in a classic kind of because it's in that classic kind of crow style gothic horror. It's mm-hmm. it's more modern. It's more kind of modern kind of dystopian kind of uh, gothic, and then of course mixed into that you've got the idea of like you know the streets are. Uh, if there's a colour that I always say that, that sums up Manchester to me, it's the sodium yellow of the street lamps illuminating red brick and and uh, and concrete and asphalt. It's all mm-hmm. it's that kind of horrible kind of uh, that yellowy colour well, that kind of washes out everything. Yeah, makes everything look kind of grim. And then, but then the theme, but 
the theme of moods then of um uh, the other the other mood that I also try and put into like the for my mage game that I want to run based in Manchester is the idea of it um the idea of, of uh the city almost being cancerous so that it's constantly fighting against itself, against things which are wanting to tear itself apart that are quite old or going out of control mm. and that sort of feeling of conflict. So it's important to have these things in mind, um, like whether the theme is a revolution or, or a th- another theme is a some things are best left forgotten. Though of course they're not. You know, they turn up and they're things that elders should have remembered but have forgotten about. Is there anything more we can say about themes and moods? It can be quite difficult, I think, to come up with different themes and moods and even ideas for plots and... In episodes, I think you can talk about themes and moods not just in kind of these poetic terms, but you can talk about them in very simple, singular words. So you can mm. go, you, you choose a word and it, and it sums up, say, the smell or the texture or the sounds of that story or plot mm. or, or even that scene. And this goes back to something which is in um, Digital Web 2.0 for Mage the Ascension. It has this yep. idea of troikas. So, when you're writing up a plot or a scene or a chronicle, you you list, you make different categories. So, the category is emotions, buildings, uh, flavors, lights, sounds, smells, and you keep make you can make as many categories as you want. And each one of those you fill with about three or more things that fit into those categories that you think could turn up in your chronicle or scene or whatever it is. It doesn't mean you're going to use them all, but it helps you both in terms of what you're, the type of stories you're going to tell, the, how that story feels when you're telling it to your players, and the type of descriptions you give. I mean, a lot of this is now kind of internalised for me, that I don't need to physically write them down, but it is quite useful. So at the top of your, you, you've got your, your, your notes... Your mm-hmm. chronicle, and at the top you've got your you, you've got on a sheet you've got your your troikas for your chronicle. You go, I've not really made use of that feeling of paranoia. How do I get that into the game? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is exactly what uh, uh, I was trying to trying to sum up uh, when I was talking to you about this. Is this idea of your theme and mood, and everything comes away from that. Like for my Pittsburgh campaign that I'm running, I chose a city divided into three because divisions is one of the themes that I'm exploring. The idea that the city is separated by location, you know, physicality. It's separated by politics. You're separated by generation. You're separated by your status. You know, all these divisions of separation that people are, are, are being pushed apart. And that, and that, I always kind of every time I read the uh, through my notes, I just read almost like a, a mission statement mm-hmm. for the beginning. You know, what are you trying to get across in this? And this, this this idea of divisions, but also on the flip side, when like you, I'd like to have multiple themes. So as as you're writing a scene or a plot with an idea of a theme that you want to explore in that th- in that plot, you just keep going back to it and say, okay, then well, it's like this. This can also help you and show you say where it should be set, how you're going to pace it, um, what kind of music you can use if you're a big fan of using music at your table. Yeah, I do all the time. Yeah, same here. Music can get a lot of about theme in straight away, really quickly, you know. And then 
all these ideas, and that's just coming from just thinking for two seconds about what, what you're trying to portray in it before you put pen to paper. James, any ideas on this? Have you been thinking in the same way, or...? Um, I mean, I, I always like how having a having a conclusive movie review of something really, like it really helps keep everything on track. Uh, I mean, I, I I mentioned last time that I finished. Well, I was watching Buffy a lot, and I finished it now. Um, but that has it does have its kind of mood throughout the whole thing. I mean, they they have their kind of flippant asides. Yeah. But there's still like there's this kind of dread and uh, kind of feel of um, learning learning who you are and becoming throughout the whole thing and that really all of the episode well not necessarily all of them but most of the episodes are themed to help keep with the theme and the mood so you like there's an individual monster will highlight a but I, I think I said this last time didn't I um, yeah the monster will highlight something that helps build up towards the whole um I, I do like to try and work with a general idea. Like there's there's kind of a there's a suffocating feeling in Hamburg, um, and part of that is because of the like um, the the air is really smoggy and it's a very industrial city, um, and it's it does feel like it's suffocating people. And that was something that I um, that made me think about it as a idea originally. And one of my first plots that I thought about was um, the there's lots of rules against smoking in places in public places but no one enforces them okay so they're just the smog and the smoke and um, yeah so I'd, I'd thought about that suffocating feeling that you get where you just like you can't where it's all it's all too much and yeah crowds around you um, and I wanted to have that as part of my chronicle admittedly now that I've thought about moving my main plot to being the culture crash thing but the culture, like, culture is something that surrounds you as well. Yeah. Um, so you can still be kind of suffocated by, um, by a, I mean, for me, by a foreign culture. You know, I find it almost as hard to, to understand as, um, as I find it hard to breathe when it's, uh, when it, the smoke is... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but... Yeah, I'm I'm starting to babble a little bit. Did, did that? Was no, that kind of makes yeah. sense. Don't worry. Yeah. You, you, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, cool. I think we've covered pretty much all of our points, have we? On on the show notes here. I think the key thing I think we've we've obviously looked at because it's very difficult to say. I've got a, a thing here. One of the show notes is up uh, bullet points is how to write the chronicle for the group. I think really. All these things are how you should think about plotting for your group because you can't you can't just write the plot without knowing all of these bits of information or at least you you could do but I don't think it'd be very easy mm. um, and I think also the things we've spoken about are will be applicable when we talk later about um, about planning and running sessions because all these things to think about are all important to have in mind when writing out your what you're going to run in a particular gaming session or for, your, or for the episode that you're running and of course 
you know, you don't need to write metric tons of notes. You know, you, you can be quite sparse, you know, bullet points and so forth. And they'll all kind of, as you go through this, I mean, I can't think of the amount of notebooks I went through until I finally had something that looked like my Venice setting for Changeling. I mean, it, it, it kind of merged out of, like, piles of paper and of notes and stuff I had on computers, and then finally becomes this final Word document. When you look at it, you go, that's a setting. <laughs> but I think, have we exhausted this topic? Are we done, guys? Or is there any final words you want to say or anything else you want to bring up that we've not covered? Mm-hmm. I think we've about covered everything, I think. Yeah. No, I think we've done very well on that. Cool. So, let's wrap up then. Um, so, the, for the next Darkling, uh, whenever that one occurs, I won't know the Darkling number, because of course it depends on other things being recorded. Um, we should be looking, I think, more in detail and at designing a intrigue. And this leads on into plotting for episodes as well. So it's kind of more about clues and how to think about how to give out clues to, uh, to players and how to do uh, the, the reveals and how to look at uh, railroading plots and how to avoid them or at least how to disguise the fact you're railroading but still make it feel playable because obviously it depends upon how you want to run your game. Maybe a bit more into looking at designing NPCs uh, how not to make a Count Von Badass, and why a Count Von Badass is, is wrong, in my opinion. Um, and, again, more about detail and cliches and stereotypes and archetypes. As always, we can be contacted via Facebook, we can be contacted by Google+. We have a posturous blog where I'm sure James and Steve, if you want to blog about anything gaming-wise, that even includes reviews of computer games, because as James has pointed out in the last, in the previous podcast of this series, that, you know, look, computer games are a great source of inspiration, so, you know, talking about computer games with relation to role-playing and so forth is quite helpful. So, yeah, we have a posturist for blogging. Uh, what else do we have? And we have a Twitter as well, which we, you know, we Twitter things when we do. And, of course, we have an email, which you can get in contact with us. And that email is uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. And, of course, by all means, because I plug them and they're good podcasts to listen to, uh, for more info, general info on other roleplay games and, um, and the type of things that we talked about, Fear the Boots, really useful. Uh, I can't... Um, can't speak anything more about them other than a bloody great and if you want to listen to anything hilarious listen to uh kicked in the dice bags because i'm hoping to get one of those guys on there uh coming on to darker days at some point in the future because he runs some world of darkness games of his own so it'd be quite interesting to see what he has to say right anything else i should plug (laughs) i think that's about it So, uh, it's goodbye from myself, Chris, and it's goodbye from James. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Steve. Goodbye. And that is the end. Now we shall go back to hell. (laughs) 